KMTT. Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. This is Ezra Bek. And today is Yom Shishi, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parshat Mishpatim. It's also Parshat Shkalim. Parshat Mishpatim begins with the Pasuk, Ve'elu Mishpatim Asher Tassim Lifnehem. The Vav of Ve'elu HaMishpatim, and these are the Mishpatim, has elicited both from Chazal, Durushim, Drashot, Perushim, throughout the ages. It's like an open uh, invitation in order to say some sort of a drush. Uh, today I want to uh, relate to a comment made by the Chida. The Chida says that, he suggests that the Ve'eluha Mishpatim, and these are the laws that you should present before them, Mishpat, the kind of laws referred to as Mishpatim, are civil laws. The laws of deciding civil matters, monetary matters, if two people, one person sues another, so there's a mishpat, ben adam lechavero, as to who's right and who's wrong, who gets the money and who doesn't. Ve'eleh ha-mishpatim, Chida says, the Vav comes to tell us, also, not just mishpat, but also pshara. Pshara means compromise. That when a case is decided, when a dispute is resolved, it can be resolved in one of two ways. It can be resolved by the principle of mishpat, the law, the formal law, as collected and codified in Sefer Choshen Mishpat, in the Rambam, Hilchot Malva in the Gemara, in Seder Neziken, Masechet Bar-Metziah, Masechet Bar-Batra, Masechet Sanhedrin, or it can be decided on a different basis, one that's not as, is not codified, it's not as well codified, which is called Pshara. Pshara isn't independent completely of Mishpat, you don't make it up out of a hat, but it doesn't follow the rules of Mishpat, it attempts to achieve a a meeting of the minds, a meeting of the interests, and a balancing of the interests of the two sides. So the Chida says, mishpatim. these are the Mishpatim, but also, also, also Pshara. And what's more, Pshara is first. Vav, Pshara, Eilah Mishpatim. And he quotes a comment of the Balaturim, the uh, Balaturim, as is well known, among after his commentary on the Torah, which is a straight pshat commentary, he added all sorts of hints, v'mazim, gematriot, which is more famous today. That's the part, that's the Balaturim that's printed in many, many chumashim. On the word mishpatim, the Balaturim says, it's Rashi Tevot. It's the, the, the letters stand for ha-mishpatim, he-mem, shin, pei, tet, yud, mem, hadayan mitzuveh, she-yaseh pshara, terem yaseh mishpat. Hadayan, the judge, is commanded to do pshara, to do compromise, before he does mishpat. And and why is this? And what is it? Why is it in this pasha? Maybe it's a good thing to seek peace and to make people happy. But why is it in this pasha? Because the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Avavim Bet, where there's a sugya about pshara, says that the idea of a dayan doing pshara is learned from two different psukim. One pasuk says, "Emet u'mishpat shalom shiftu b'sha'arichem, truth and justice of peace you should judge in your gates." And the Gemara says, "What is mishpat shalom? If there's mishpat, if there's law, there isn't shalom. There is no peace because one side wins and one side loses, and he's probably a sore loser. And if there's shalom, there isn't mishpat. But apparently that's not true. Yesh." 
exists also. Mishpat sheyesh b'shalom. What is mishpat sheyesh b'shalom? Havei Omer zepshara. In other words, the Gemara is saying is that although when we first look at it, shalom and mishpat are contradictory, but there's something called mishpat sheyesh b'shalom. Not shalom, but mishpat sheyesh b'shalom. There is a law, a judgment, which maintains or increases or contains peace and doesn't and doesn't ignore it. The second pasuk is almost the same thing, a slightly different expression. David HaMelech was a successful and wonderful king because he did Mishpat Utztaka, law and tzedakah. And Chazal understood the word tzedakah in the modern sense, meaning charity, and not in its uh, original sense, in the Lashon Tzedek, meaning another term, another term meaning justice. So Mishpat Sheyesh Patztaka, what is Mishpat Sheyesh Patztaka? A law which also has generosity, it has charity within it. And therefore, the Chida adds that's the context of the Pasuk. Vashi comments on the, on the place, quoting Chazal, means before qualified judges. Who have smicha, they've been. Uh, uh, appointed to their, to their positions in an unbroken chain going back to Moshe Rabbeinu to Sinai and you're not allowed to go for the law for justice to Hedyoto to simple people who haven't learned the Torah and not qualified but if we include Pshara into the Pasuk itself as the Chida suggested and as the Balaturim said then Pshara is also to be granted only to Chachmei Torah and not to other people because you shouldn't think that Pshara is something that's done because we don't know the real law. We're uncertain, so let's make a compromise. If we're stuck, it's a complicated case, we're not sure what the right answer is, let's do a compromise. No. Compromise is done even before law because it's an expression of mishpat sheyesh bashalom. It's an expression of law. It's a different kind of a law, but it's also law. It's law sheyesh bashalom. And therefore, just as Chachmei Torah, the Sanhedrin, apply the law, so too Chachmei Sanhedrin apply Pshara apply pizua, apply compromise, because compromise is not a is not a compromise. It's not a giving up of true law. It's a different version of true law, one that does not fall in its in its in its holiness and in its application and its and its desirability from the letter of the law, which may be just, but has the detriment of actually being a violation of an equally important principle, the principle of peace. Our guest today is Harav Yossi Blau. Harav Blau is the Mashkiach Ruchani in Yeshivat Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Khanan, Yeshiva Pan of Yeshiv University, and is also the president of the Religious Zionists of America, the organization that used to be called Mizrahi Apol Mizrahi. That particular position has a very special part of my own heart. Fifty-five years ago, my father was president of a Mizrahi of America, and so I cannot help but take my hat off for the person who occupies the position today. Uh, Rav Blau was visiting Israel this week, and we've taken the opportunity to put him into this uh, podcast, to put him on as a guest for KMTT. Rav Yassi Blau. The parsha we're going to read this Shabbos, Parshat Mishpatim, Begins with the Ela Hamishpatim Asher Tasim Lifnehem. Rashi points out in the name of Chazal 
that v'ela indicates that the halachot, the laws that are going to be discussed in Parashat Mishpatim, are a continuation and an addition to those of the Aseret HaDebrot, of the Ten Commandments, that were discussed in Parashat Yitro. And what is striking is the topics that are discussed in the beginning of Parashat Mishpatim. The contrast with the lofty ideals of the Aseret HaDibrot, of Ma'amad Har Sinai, divine revelation, a unique moment in human history, where, according to our tradition, not only did Moshe Rabbeinu hear the divine voice, but the entire Jewish people heard the first two Dibrot directly from Hashem. The Talmud in Mesechet Makot derives the number 613 as the mitzvot of the Torah from the biblical verse Torah Tziva Lanu Moshe Torah Taf Vav Resh Hey adds up to 611 and the other two Anochi Veloyihi Alecha the first two of the Ten Commandments we heard all together directly from Hashem. The Medrash also says that not only the Jews who lived at that time, but the souls of all the Jews throughout history. And now let us return to the beginning of Mishpatim. The first item discussed is the Ki Sikne Eved Ivri. Discussing the acquisition of a Hebrew slave. And while it is true that the Jewish concept of slavery is very different from that which we know historically as slavery, nevertheless, being a slave is clearly not a very desirous position in life. How did one become an Evidivri? He stole money or some other object and apparently spent what he stole on some items, I doubt very appropriate ones, and when he was caught, he did not have the money to pay back for that which was stolen. And the Betin, the rabbinical court, sells him for a six-year period. The treatment of the Evidivri is remarkable in that he is to be given equal rights to everything that the master has, even including the situation where there's only one pillow. Since he has to be equal, he, the slave, not the master, is the one that gets the pillow. However, one would imagine, after discussing the Ten Commandments, the Torah would not be talking about buying slaves, but rather talking about something noble and sublime. As we continue, there is a discussion about the Eved Ivri, the Hebrew slave, who refuses to leave after the six-year period 
of slavery. And he says, I want to continue, I want to remain married to a uh, maidservant. And he becomes what's called the Eved Hanirza, the slave whose right ear is pierced. And that piercing is understood by Chazal and brought down by Rashi, either because of lo signo, if he heard in you shouldn't steal, and he did, or because of he heard that the Jews are the slaves or the servants of God, of Hashem, but not the slaves of other slaves of human beings. Remember, we're discussing the Torah that's given soon after the Jews have escaped from the slavery of Egypt to enter Cherut freedom. And this individual rejects freedom and wants to remain a slave. If we continue the next few verses, we get into people whose behavior perhaps is even worse. The discussion continues about a man who's willing to sell his childhood daughter into a form of slavery. And then the Torah discusses murderers. Can't the Torah on Sinai teach us about positive things, high-level individuals? But I think there's something extremely significant in that which I've just mentioned. The test of religion and the value of a religious life is how it deals with the lowest levels of society, with the most unpleasant of situations. It's not merely sublime moments. It's not merely inspiration. It's the total details of life. And life does include very unpleasant events and occasions. In that vein, it's very interesting. We know that uh, the Jews responded by saying, Na'asev Nishma. We are going to accept the Torah and then first listen or understand and study it. If we look at the end of the parasha, the initial response is really simply the one word, Na'aseh, which is appropriate for the Ten Commandments. We accept it. The Medrash contrasts the Jews with other nations who were offered the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and they wanted to know what was included and said, we can't accept this or we can't accept that, while the Jews said, we'll take it in totality. But if that's the case, the shift from Naseh to Naseh and Ishma is not merely saying Naseh first, but incorporating the Nishma as well. And I think this follows very much from the Torah reading of tomorrow, of Shabbat, of that which I have started to discuss with you. The Ten Commandments don't need great clarification. The laws of slaves, of murderers, later in the parish of the story, the details of the four different kinds of shomrim, 
of people who take responsibility to watch objects cannot be understood solely on the face value or simply looking at the biblical verses and translating them. It requires deep analysis, the oral tradition, trying to understand the fullness of the values and the laws that the Torah is teaching us. So it is only in the context of Ve'ela HaMishpatim that these are also from Sinai that we have to add the phrase V'nishma, that we have to understand Torah. It's not enough that we accept it, we have to delve into it fully and try to grasp all it has to teach us. Then, of course, it's remarkable that while we are focusing on understanding on questions and answers, as Talmudic study is consists of questions and answers, nevertheless, our commitment is beyond our comprehension. And that's the notion of saying Naseh Nishma and saying Naseh first. That even though we know that we have to understand, we have to study, we have to delve, nevertheless our commitment is not limited to that which we comprehend at this point. Returning for a moment to the application of Torah to all types of people and all of life. This is the notion of what we call Torah Chayim, a Torah that deals fully with life. And life includes all components and all kinds of people. And our notion of Judaism, whether it's the Halakha, Jewish law, or Jewish thought and Jewish values, is all encompassing. I have the opportunity now of being in Israel, of being in alone foot speaking to you, and people should realize the incredible opportunity and challenge that now exists to the religious Jewish community. The emergence of the state of Israel is an opportunity to apply Torah to all of life in a manner that did not exist for the past 1900 years. Not the notion that it's good that we have Jewish robbers, but if we have Jewish robbers, there's a halacha to deal with it. If we have Jewish people who can't handle freedom, there's Jewish law to aid us in dealing with them as well. It's a great challenge as well as an opportunity. There's an election coming up in Israel, and I don't want to get political, but truthfully, if the religious parties actually won the election, there would be a great problem. Then we'd have to demonstrate that we can run a modern society on the basis of halacha, of Jewish law, and handle all the questions that arise. We have to produce not only great Tamidei Chachamim, great Torah scholars, but scholars who are knowledgeable in science and technology, in economics and political theory, and able to truly run a state on the basis of Torah. So it's a great opportunity, 
and a great challenge. Again, think back. Parashat Yitro, Aserat Adibrot. Profound, sublime, clear as can be. The Eilah HaMishpatim, complicated, confusing, dealing with many details, encompassing unpleasant situations and individuals. But the two were both given together on Sinai. This is our notion of the fullness of Jewish life. This is the challenge. And a challenge that we now have the opportunity to take on in a deeper way than we've had for thousands of years. Mishpatim is a very difficult parsha, And some of the topics are very hard to understand, to grasp. And applying them in different historical periods, in different environments, is not easy. Rav Salavechik Zechatzadik Levracha, in a number of different ways, reiterated the notion that we are committed to the viability of a Torah way of life, of applying halacha in all societies, in all times, in all situations and in all cultures. This is, to a great degree, the challenge of our times. You have been listening to Rav Yassi Blau, our guest speaker for this program for Erev Parshat Mishpatim. Going to the other end, the other end of Parshat Mishpatim, the very, very end of the Pasha, we have one of the most famous psukim in Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu presents the Brit, the covenant, to B'nai Israel, and they answer, Kol Asher, everything that God has commanded, Na'aseh Benishma. Na'aseh Benishma has become a slogan of observant Judaism. People tend to think that this passage must be found in Pashat Yitro, where the Ten Commandments were given to B'nai Israel. But in fact, there it doesn't say that. In, in Pashat Yitro, before the Torah is given, the Jews answer Moshe Rabbeinu, everything that God has commanded, na'aseh, we will do. Here, at the end of Pashat Mishpatim, it says na'aseh benishma. Rashi, on the spot, says that this entire section, the end of Pashat Mishpatim, took place before aseret adibot, and that the psukim are not in order. Rashi has a general attitude towards many, many pashiyot, that the order, the historical order, is not preserved in the, in, in the Torah. But according to many Mufashim, principally the Ramban, uh, we're dealing with something which took place after Aseret HaDibrot, after the great uh, uh, event. And then Moshe Rabbeinu comes and enacts this covenant with the Jews. And at that point they say, Naseh Nishma. Naseh Nishma, why is Naseh Nishma such a famous expression? I just would like to review for those who, who know it and, and, and enlighten those who may not. The, the Gemara in, has a number of different statements explaining that Nasem Nishma was crucial. It was one of the most critical points in Jewish history. The Gemara in Shabbat, the uh, 88a, has the following statement. Darash Rabbi Simai. Rabbi Simai said, at the time that the Jews said Naaseh before they said Nishma, so 60, 600,000 angels came to each and every one of the Jews, 
since there were 600,000 Jews, actually there were much, many more than that, there were 600,000 male Jews above the age of 20, but each one of them got 600,000 angels. I would assume that this might be exaggerated, but the point is quite clear. 600,000 angels came to each one of the Jews and tied on his head two crowns, one for Na'aseh and one for Nishma. Rashi says that these crowns, what does it mean, crowns? Miziv hashchina. I can't even translate that, from the from the aura of the Holy Presence of God. A little bit later, the Gemara has a different statement concerning Na'aseh and Nishma. Amar Rabbi Elazar, when the Jews said Naaseh before Nishma, a voice came out from heaven and said, Who revealed this secret to my children, the secret that the angels, the ministering angels, use? This is a pasuk about the angels where it says also that they are, they do God's commands, and they listen to his commands. First do, and then listen. Just like the Jews that said do and listen. So a special voice, the heavenly voice came and says, how did the Jews discover this amazing secret? A secret of a secret of the angels. What both of these statements are saying about Na'asev and Ishma, we will do and we will listen, is that they are not human. The, the, the principle and the language used by the Gemara is they preceded Naaseh to Nishma. That these this this statement, this idea of being Naaseh and Nishma, it doesn't belong to humans. It belongs to the second statement. It belongs to the angels. It's a secret of the ministering angels. And the first statement also, Rashi explains what are these crowns? It's not just telling you you're a good person, you're a wonderful person. Miziv Hashchina. It it was the saying Naaseh and Nishma caused the heads of the Jews to glow with the glory of the Holy Presence of God in the world. I think it means it's truly not a human trait. We can admire, we do admire Naseh and Nishma very much, but it definitely isn't the only option. Nishma and Naseh is a wonderful thing as well. And in a way, it's more human. You, you should, most of the time, when someone presents something with me, I would insist on first hearing the details and only afterwards uh, doing what I've been told to do. But here, the Jews really transcended themselves, standing at the foot of Hasinai. They, they transcended the normal rational attitude towards accepting the yoke of heaven. Rashi says here in a number of other places that the principle of Naseh and Ishma is, as the language of the Gemara implies, preceding, saying first Naseh and then Nishma. In which case, what does Naseh and Ishma mean? It means that you accept God's will. Not because it makes sense to you, not because you're impressed by this or by that, or the, or the contents, but it means subjugation to the will of God. And that apparently was this crucial point described by the Gemara, that the Jews now have transcended being human or normal servants of God and have become like ministering angels. There is another explanation that I know of the Naseb Nishma offered by the Sfono on the Pasha. He has a different explanation for what the words mean. He says, Na'asev doesn't mean that we'll do first and then hear afterwards, which technically is actually impossible. You at least have to hear what you're going to do before you do it. So Rashi means we will do and then we will understand. But it does actually say Nishma, we will hear. The Svana says it doesn't mean that. It means Na'asev, we will do in order that we will hear. 
In other words, it means we will do things not in order to receive this or that benefit, but the reason why we're doing things is simply because we want to hear them. We want we want to accept them. It's not so much an opposition to nasa to nishma as nasa kedei shama. We will do it because we want to hear more, because we want to be those who have received the Torah. In which case it refers not to a blind acceptance so much, as Rashi says, but it refers to pure acceptance, what we call lishma, the acceptance of the yoke of heaven, not for any perceived or possible benefit, spiritual or physical, that will derive from it, but simply that at this point in history the Jews said, we accept the Torah because we want to accept the Torah, because we want to be the recipient of God's commands. We will do what God says because we want God to speak to us. We will do what God says because we want to be those who will hear what God has to say. If we won't do it, God won't talk to us. We want to be He who is being commanded. Among other things, although this is not definite, this might make more sense according to those who disagree with Rashi and say this took place after Aserat HaDebot, the beauty of Rashi's Pshat, that it's we will hear, we will do, and then we will hear, makes sense that they said it before God told them anything. God hadn't given them any mitzvot. They said, don't worry, we accept them all. Once God already has given them ten mitzvot, and they've heard them, and understood them, then saying we will do, and then we will listen, is less less marvelous. First of all, at least some mitzvot they have listened, and then they're going to do, and that might affect the way they accept the others. So, uh, Rashi, therefore, of course, says that this was said before, before the giving of the Ten Commandments. But according to the Ramban, and, and, and the Rashbam and many other expert, uh, commentators, that this is said after Asad Adibot. Uh, it, it doesn't have that marvelous ring to it of we will do and we will listen, but the Svanal Pshat makes a lot of sense. They have heard some mitzvot, and they now say we will do those mitzvot because we want to hear more. We will do the mitzvot because we want God to give all his mitzvot to us and not to anybody else. We are the people who want to listen to what God has to say. In any event, I, I quoted two Gemaras, there are many other Medrashim as well, which talk about Naseb and Nishma as being the, the, the epitome of the Jewish relationship to God, more than Aserat HaDibot themselves, more than uh, other things the Jews did. This was when they said they tied themselves to their destiny as God's people, and it's the crucial moment in Jewish history. There's a fascinating passage in Chazal, found in a Tosefta in Baba Kama. And I'm mentioning this because I really don't understand it and I think we should think about it. Uh, it it's bothered me for years. On two different occasions, on, on Shavuos night, I, I, I thought about it specifically on Shavuot. I've gone to ask Harav Yud Amital what he thinks of this passage in Chazal. I waited enough years in between so he wouldn't remember that I asked him previously. Each time he gave me a different answer and frankly I don't remember what he said. It, lo, it, wasn't, it didn't really enter my heart and therefore it didn't stick in my ears. What does the what is what does Chazal say? What does the Tosefta say? There was a sugya in the Gemara there about a concept called Ginevat Dat. There is a prohibition of Gineva, of stealing, meaning stealing money. There is another prohibition called Ginevat Dat, where I steal your mind. In other words, I I fool you. I've I've misled you. I've given you a wrong impression for this reason and for that reason. And that's called Ginevat Dat, and it's it's a prohibition. That's just an example given in the in the in the Gemara. Uh, the one says you shouldn't walk into a store and express interest in buying something if you have no intention of buying it, simply because you want to uh, you want to find out some information. Because you are stealing the mind, you are misleading. You're giving the storekeeper false hopes, and you have no intention whatsoever of fulfilling them. 
Halacha Lamaisa, it could be that today it's different. Storekeepers encourage people to browse because they hope in the end maybe you'll become interested, so they don't mind as much. But the Gemara thought it was also at least in those in those circumstances. I mentioned that just as an example of what the concept of Gnevat Da'at is. It means false pretenses, uh, uh, giving the wrong impression. To which the Tosefta adds the following statement. And Af Yisrael Bikshuli Gnov Da'atoshal Makom. And the Jews as well sought to steal the mind, to mislead, to give a false pretense to the mind of God. When was that? When they said Na'asev Nishma. First time I read this Tosefta, I was floored. Na'asev Nishma would be the banner of Torah observant Judaism. The greatest moment of the Jewish relationship to God is presented in Tosefta as a deception. They said Na'asev Nishma, they were trying to they were trying to, to mislead God. They were, they, were, they were trying to give the wrong impression. So I, I think what it means, first of all, in terms of just the shot of the words, is they, don't, they weren't lying. They weren't actually deceiving God. I think what, it, what it's coming to say is Nasev and Ishma is indeed impossible. The Gemarot the, uh, I mentioned beforehand, it's a, it's a trait that belongs to angels. And the Jews weren't actually angels. It could be they thought they were. In other words, at that given moment, standing at the foot of Hasinai, hearing the voice of God, they really wanted to say and believe Nasev and Ishma. And therefore they said it. They weren't only stealing God's mind, misleading God, they perhaps were doing Gnevadat Atzmam. They were stealing their own minds. I, I think that's what the words mean. In other words, here's an occasion where you said something and perhaps you thought you meant it or you meant it in a, in a literal sense. But it's not really true. It's not really what you're going to do. Not because we know the future, the Jews will change their minds. It's really more than can be expected that someone should actually say a human mind with the human, the human attitude towards things, a rational mind, could really say with a full and uncomplicated heart, an unequivocal heart, we will do and we will listen. I'm, of course, assuming the Rashi explanation of the term, the more common one. So that's what I think the pshat in the Tosefta is, but that still leaves the question as to so what are Chazal really trying to say here? Are they really trying to say that this wasn't the greatest moment of Jewish history and Nasev and Ishma doesn't really mean what we think it means because it wasn't really said with a full heart? Definitely leaves a lot of questions open, this interesting Tosefta. And nonetheless, I don't think we have to take the, the words off our banner. It's been the banner of Judaism for Orthodox Judaism, observant Judaism for a couple of thousand years. And indeed, it is the ideal to which we to which we aspire. And now, we switch over to today's halacha yomit. We've uh, reached Shmonesre. Shmonesre is called by Chazal Tfila. In other words, Shma and Brachot of Kriyat Shma and Psukei Dezimah are not actually Tfila. They're not actually prayer. The word Tfila in Chazal means what we call Shmonesre, the eighteen Brachot. And it has different halachot than does Kriyat Shema. The obligation to pay is a machloket between the Rambam and the Balayat Asfot as to whether it's the Oraita or the Rabbanan. The Rambam says that Tfilah is midioraita. Shenema vavatem et Hashem alokechem. Ezuhi avodashi balev. Habei omer zot Tfilah. You should serve God with your hearts. I'm quoting the Sifri, asks, what does it mean to serve with one's heart? The word to serve specifically normally 
normally refers to the service in the Beit HaMikdash, which is service of action, Avodat Hashem Sheba Mikdash. But what does it mean to serve God with your heart? And the Sufi answers, this is Tefillah. Therefore the Rambam Paskins, Allah Chalamaisa, that Tefillah is an obligation, Midioraita. Tosfot holds that Tefillah is the Rabbanan. If Tefillah is the Oraita, then the Mamam says in the beginning of the Chot Tefillah, the obligation is to pray. There is no set time and there are no set words. The words and the time, these were in fact established by Chazar, by Anshek Nesat Agdola, and, and the actual words therefore are the Rabbanan. One of the differences between whether it's the Oraita or the Rabbanan would concern whether or not it's a mitzvah asesh as man grama. If Tfilah is Midioraita, then the mitzvah Dioraita has no time. And if it's mitzvah Taseh man Grama, and that's why women are Chayavot in Tfilah. The Mishnah in Brachot says explicitly that women are Chayavot in Tfilah. Patu mi Kriyat Shema, Vachayav be'tfilah. Kriyat Shema is a time-dependent mitzvah. Tfilah, Davening, Shmonesha, in other words, they are obligated. The Rambam explains, because it's a mitzvah Taseh She'en has man Grama, because mitzvah Midioraita is general, it's all the time. It's all the way the Rambam says, once a day. According to Tosafot, that Tfilah is the Rabbanan, and Tfilah mid Rabbanan surely has different times, Shacharit, Mincha, Emariv, each one has its time. Therefore, it would appear that the Mitzvah, which is the Rabbanan, is a Mitzvah to say Shazman Grama. And in fact, the Mishnah, which says the women are obligated, so Tosafot has the Girsan the Gemara that asks why, and the answer is because it's rachami, because it's it's requests, because it's pleading. In other words, it really is a mitzvah to say shazman grama, but it's an exception. It's not a technical mitzvah which it's possible to exempt somebody. What Chazal is basically saying, according to the uh, version of Tosfat of the Gemara, is that it's impossible not to pray. When Chazal established the mitzvah of prayer, they established it because it's a basic human need. It's your requests of God. It's your, it's your pleading, it's your, it's, your, it's your soul. And therefore, it's just inconceivable to make a distinction between men and women, and therefore women are, are included. Now, for many generations, women did not in fact daven. And the Achorim ask, why not? It's a Mishnah Mifareshet, it's an explicit Mishnah, that women are obligated to daven. The Magen Avrahams made the suggestion that perhaps and I'm being deliberately uh, weak and vague in my formulation, he made a suggestion that perhaps it's because we hold like the Rambam. The Rambam says that it's a mitzvah diorita for women to pray. However, the Maganavan pointed out, that's only the mitzvah diorita. When the Rabbanat instituted times, perhaps we should look at the mitzvah de Rabbanat, the Daven Shacharit, and the Mincha, and Ma'ariv, is a mitzvah de Rabbanat shehazman grama, which is time-dependent. And women are not obligated in it. The mitzvah diorita, which is not time-dependent, women are obligated, but that mitzvah has no time nor a set version. And therefore, women are fulfilled the mitzvah, midioraita, to daven, by saying anything at any time. So, Magadavim suggested, well, modani might be sufficient. Or any other, any other saying something to God which fulfill the mitzvah deoraita and the mitzvah derabanan, they are they are exempt. Why was the Magen Avraham somewhat hesitant to advance this theory? The theory, in fact, is extremely weak. First of all, who says that we pass like the Rambam? 
Secondly, all the Rambam said was that Midioraita, women are obligated because it's it's a mitzvah to say She'ein Hazman Vama, because it's not a time-dependent mitzvah. Logically, when then Chachamim come and give times and form and content to the mitzvah Diyaraita, the obvious thing to say would be that they set this definition for the mitzvah and for those who are obligated in the mitzvah Diyaraita. And since there's no difference between men and women in the mitzvah Diyaraita, then it would, it would seem normal to conclude that the times that Chazal established was for everybody, for men and for women. It's true that now it's mitzvah tasesha as man grama, but since the, in essentially, in its, in its Diyaraita formulation, it's mitzvah tasesha ein has man grama, so now it continues the same way. And, and Chazal gave content to men and to women, and they gave times to men and to women. There's surely no hint in the Rambam that he thinks that women are not obligated. On the contrary, the Rambam says men and women are chayev, or obligated in tefillah. And then he proceeds to define, and, and this is how you daven, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, which is the same thing that the Gemara does. The mission says that men and women are chayavot in chayavim in tefillah, and then proceeds to explain all the other halachot. So even if you do hold like the Rambam, there's no particularly convincing reason to assume that you should have a dual approach, a mitzvah that the women are obligated in, and another mitzvah, a different mitzvah of Rabbanan, which women are exempt. There's no different mitzvah. The, the, what you call the mitzvah de Rabbanan is the form that Chazal gave to the mitzvah, to the mitzvah de Yoraita. And therefore, most poskim conclude that women are obligated to daven, and to daven, to daven like men. The Mishnah Bura had an interesting uh, compromise, you might say. He said, well, women are chayavot in shacharit and mincha. However, they are exempt from Ma'ariv. And why is that? Because in the Gemara, there's a controversy as to whether Ma'ariv is Rishut or Chova. Whether Ma'ariv is oblig- obligatory. We're not talking about women now, we're talking about in general. Is Ma'ariv obligatory, the Shmanesri of Ma'ariv, or is it Rishut? It's a voluntary, a voluntary expression of prayer. The reason being that Shacharit and Mincha are parallel to Korbanot, to the sacrifice, the tamid of the morning and the tamid of the afternoon, but there was no sacrifice at night. So the Gemara says that Mariv is parallel not to a sacrifice, but to the burning of the remnants of the sacrifices all night. Then there's a machogat in the Gemara, whether it's obligatory or, or merely voluntary. The Post can say that today it's obligatory, because Amisa has accepted upon itself even if it were voluntary in its original nature, but they've accepted upon it upon themselves. So the Mishnah Bura says, well, it's obvious the women have not accepted it because women don't daven. In his day, it was still true that most women didn't daven any tefillah. So he says, well, they're wrong. They should daven shachrit and mincha, but it's not true that they've accepted it upon themselves ma'ari because they haven't. This also isn't the most uh, 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 persuasive argument. The question is whether or not the obligation which is accepted upon oneself is separated into the group called men and the group called women. Perhaps people who are under five feet tall have not accepted it. We don't normally check groups in that manner. Amisa, the Jews have accepted Ma'ariv, and uh, it therefore becomes becomes obligatory. But the psak of the Mishnah Bura is two tefillah today. I think that's what's taught in most schools today. Uh, two tefillah today, Shacharit and Mincha. And Ma'ariv, 
he still suggests it would be a good thing to daven, but you cannot say that it's that it's obligatory. And there are poskim who disagree with that as well. In any event, uh, according to the Tosafot, the reasoning that it's rachmi and therefore they should do it, that it's petition, it's it's requests, and therefore women should daven, would seem to indicate there should be no difference between men and women whatsoever. The idea of tefillah is different than than rituals. Rituals sometimes men are obligated, sometimes women are obligated, sometimes kohenim are obligated, but but vachami. It's the it's the it's the oxygen for one's soul. The whole idea of distinguishing between different groups, I think, is what the Gemara was rejecting. There has been in the last seventy-five years a a real revolution in this matter. Uh, seventy-five years ago, I think most women were taught, and most women did in fact not daven. Uh, maybe they went to shul on Shabbat, and I assume they said no ani, and there was a chinot that women said, but women were not actually taught. To daven. When I was a child, the schools that uh, we went to taught women to daven once a day. My children, 30 years later, were taught to daven twice a day. And this is only in the last, really, in the last two generations, we've gone from zero to one to two. Uh, basically, the attitude is, in fact, that one should not distinguish between in, in between men and women in tefillah. Although I still think that what's being taught is that maviv, like the Mishnah Buddha said, that maviv is an exemption. That's it for today. We'll be back next week. Monday, Shir, in Yuchot Barachot. Another week of KMTT. This has been Ezra Bek, broadcasting from Gush Etzion, from Yeshivat HaRetzion. I want to wish you all a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Tov, Chodesh Adar is coming. Yishinichnas Adar, Marbim B'Simcha. We should all have a happy and good month. We should hear B'Sorot Tovot. Until then, call to the Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to KMTT. Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.